I've been listening to, rather, I've been reading Fox's book of martyrs. And it is just leveling me in my heart. I've been having this growing desire to know about Christian history. I never thought that I would have a desire to know about those things. I've actually always said, you know, you could know everything there is to know about every history, this, that, and the other, and still not know God, and it's true. But I'm finding that there is a very rich reward for going back and appreciating and respecting the foundation of the faith that I'm enjoying today and really coming to grips with all of the pain and the loss and the torture and the heartache and the suffering and the persecution that tens of thousands of early Christians had to face in order for me to even have a Bible today to read and worship my God. The cost has been unbelievable. And so now I'm connecting this new awareness that I'm getting about just how drastic the measures were that Satan took against the early church and how courageous and bold and triumphant the faith of so many was. I'm now connecting that picture of Christianity and trying to connect it to or contrast it with, rather, the picture that I see of contemporary Christianity in America. And it is very gross. It is very gross. I don't know how else to say it. It is devastating for me to see what we call church today and where we get so upset when we get a little spiritual hangnail. We can't pay a bill. We've been laid off from work. There's been an affair. All things that are very, very hurtful, there's no doubt. But when life doesn't go our way or somebody isn't nice to us or they don't let us see their child, our children or they say bad things about us, we get so bent out of shape. And when I contrast our response to verbal, emotional assaults, uh, just general life difficulties that we experience today with what these early Christians went through intentionally because they were standing strong on their faith in God, it, it just blows my mind. And it makes me feel bad about the times I've felt so sorry for myself going through what I went through. I've never been one to feel sorry for myself for very long, and I don't have a, a great deal of mercy for those who wallow in self-pity. I just don't, I don't get it. But I started thinking about, you know, all the whining that happens in marriages. I'm, I was just listening to a Chip Ingram program, and, you know, we're constantly trying to give people what we call tools to help them put out these fires and to fix the communication errors and the pain of a difficult marriage and the frustrations of, you know, all the things that happen when our expectations aren't met, our needs aren't being met, so forth and so on. And a long time ago, I began to realize the major sin and the major problem is the self, our self-life. And the, the major answer is to give up self. And that's what these people did in the early church. They did not try to fix the problems. They gave up their life. They didn't try to, if they could get away, they would. But when they got caught, 
They would walk into it with courage. They gave themselves to unthinkable amounts of torture and the cruelest ways of dying you could think of because of their faith in Christ. And so admirable and so courageous and so selfless and so faithful. And then I look at how, again, we get these little spiritual hangnails and we want to just cry and moan and complain and feel so sorry for ourselves and wallow in self-pity. God is not enough for me. Why can't I just have this? Why can't I get this to work? Why can't I get a job? Why won't my kid won't do this? And we just, I feel like we have, we have had such a perversion of perspective. I think that Americans are so completely blind to what true Christianity looks like that we have changed what we call and define as suffering. The early church, what they called suffering and what we call suffering are two completely different things. My point would be proved in that if somebody like ISIS is able to come to the United States or Russia and we begin to experience that kind of persecution on our soil, the temperature will be turned up, the bar will be raised, the perspective will be changed. We will no longer moan and whine and act like little babies over the fact that we can't find a good job or that our wife isn't having sex with us enough or our husband isn't doing enough dishes or he doesn't look after the kids enough. Instead, we would now be forced to change our perspective on what real suffering is. And so some would say, well, yeah, Mike, but that's not happening. So this is real suffering to me. But the fact of the matter is, is that it is happening to people right now to the tune of about 100,000 people a year are brutally tortured and martyred for their faith in Christ. The early martyrs were to be examples. In fact, for every great martyr story that you hear, the more horrible it is, the more courageous the faith they had, the more of a witness and a testimony it was even to the very people who were bringing the death and the torture. Many of the, the torturers were converted because of the example of the torturee. So, is it not the case today that those being tortured all around the world, we should be conscious of them and mindful of them and allow them to be examples of patience and the faith of suffering? Or should we say, well, that doesn't relate to us. Does God, would God approve of that? Would God say, yeah, that doesn't really apply to you Christians in America, so you don't have to worry about it. The fact that you're having a hard time paying a bill, that's some real suffering. I feel like I've always kind of known this at a deep kind of spiritual level, and I feel like now it's finally getting clothes put on it. Like I'm finally starting to... And of course, if, if I stand up and say this kind of thing, I'm going to be seen as radical, and I've never been afraid of being seen as radical. I certainly seem to have that desire to trust God no matter what. The same thing could be said of me. Are you going to let a little thoughts of what people think about you you're going to call that miserable suffering I tell you I could see why God would want us in America to be taken over by a foreign power or to be hit within and to strike such a fear in us that 
we quit all of our whining and moaning over the most ridiculous, childish, immature things. I'm including myself in this. Anything that I've ever complained about, I mean, I think to myself, it's all relative, you know, but it's relative to your perspective. So, you know, when I'm six months into waiting for Laura and I'm in the woods crying because I'm so feeling so disappointed that God has brought this beautiful, amazing woman on my path and said, Michael, I'm going to give her to you if you'll believe me for her and you'll wait. And uh, I'm crying and all upset because God, my timing doesn't match with God's timing. When there are people who will never have another mate or they had a mate like her, like Laura, and then he dies in a plane crash. What a different perspective. That's kind of what I find when I read people's stories who have these just unbelievable tragedies happen to them. And I want to say that I've been through something because my wife has been on the high end of parental alienation and saying mean things about me and my kids are still alive. My kids still love me. My kids still have a hope that they're going to see me one day and I still have a hope that I'm going to see them one day. What kind of suffering is that compared to the man's story I just read who went out with his three sons and his father on a fishing trip and the, the, the boat capsizes. They all tie themselves together and they're, I can't remember how many miles out, but swimming, swimming, swimming. And he's the only one that makes it. All the rest of them succumb to the six-foot waves. They take in too much salt water and they die one by one. And this man has to be attached to all of his family members while they die have I have I ever experienced that kind of suffering? I mean, that kind of courage that that man went through is supposed to embolden me. So God's grace was sufficient for him to get through that such that his example of courage can embolden me and strengthen me to go through whatever difficulty I have to go through. You know... I feel like that's a, this is another way that I can encourage people. If I could somehow or another com connect this message and make it relevant to what people are going through today and to help them see this desperate need for perspective change so that they can have additional courage and all of a sudden they don't feel so hopeless. In other words, if my wife just left me and said that I'm the devil for, you know, countless times to my kids and won't let me see them. That's a bad series of painful circumstances, no doubt. That's hurtful. But if I meet a man who lost all of his children and a wife who loved him in a car accident he was the only survivor that's another kind of suffering that I don't know and when I hear of his story of suffering it recalibrates my perspective such that all of a sudden I, I'm able to say okay somebody's been through worse than me and he made it somehow or another I'm going to make it but we don't hear these stories I mean I've shared a couple of these stories already and people are like huh I never knew that feel like 
in the beginning, the devil persecuted the Christians so bad by just chopping them into pieces and trying to rid the whole world of them. That didn't work. He, the more he would kill them, the more they would multiply, like little spiritual roaches. <laughs> but in America, it's a different strategy. If you can't kill them, multiply them, and give them this perspective that they're okay in the lukewarm pot they're swimming in, or then bring them so much difficulty and because they brought it on themselves, give them a super shallow faith so that they never quite really understand what Christianity is all about. And when things don't go well, by the way, tell them that suffering is not what God had planned for them. And so then when things go wrong, they'll be disillusioned at God. And when they can't pay a bill or they lose a job or so forth and so on. So I want to make a message a series about this. I went on a search this morning. Today is uh, February 4th, 2015, 7.46 in the morning. I've gone on a search this morning through some old documents. I've been looking for a list I made many, many, many months ago, about 50 areas in life that I wanted to memorize the top three scriptures of each subject for. And I'm going back through, and it's like a trip through memory lane of a lot of things that I've made for myself to hold fast to my faith and to encourage me, to help me to persevere, notes uh, that I've made and, and stuff from when I was homeless and even before then. And it's very interesting to me that what's happening when I read all of this is I'm realizing more and more I'm looking at these things and almost saying, wow, I like, duh, like I already know this. Now, of course, at the time... These things were revelatory to me, uh, huge uh, lessons that I needed to, to burn in my brain. And so, for example, I, I turn into these promise pages I made about waiting on the Lord and trusting in the Lord. And it's funny, they don't even seem relevant to me right now. And what I mean is it's not at all that scriptures or trusting in the Lord or waiting upon the Lord are not relevant, but they are so embedded in me. They are so a part of my walk now. This is fascinating. They've become so ingrained in my walk with God that I used to have to read these in order to find strength. And I'm not saying that there won't ever be times down the road. There won't be bigger um, obstacles, bigger tests of my faith that I won't then need to rerun back to. But what I'm, what I'm realizing is, is how much stronger God has made me. I've found this lesson that whatever area I had been weak in over the last three and a half years, I would find a, a ton of scriptures that speak directly to that area. And then as I would meditate on those scriptures, be it pride, insecurity, forgiveness, waiting upon the Lord, trusting the Lord, persevering, whatever it was, usually after about a month, I no longer needed to read that. I found like, wow, okay, I got this and I'm not weak in this area anymore. God has strengthened me through his word. And so I just am celebrating in praise of God and the work he's done. I read this, against all hope, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and glorified God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. When I read this scripture now, Romans 4, 18 through 21, that's a paraphrase of that scripture, I realize that is so in me. It is in me to trust God, to not waver, 
in regarding to the promises of God. But I have, through a long period of waiting, it's amazing, the longer I have had to wait, the stronger my faith in God is. I don't find myself, you know, oh God, where's the justice? Oh God, when my kids? Oh God, when Laura? I mean, it's amazing to me. It is amazing. This is such a powerful principle because it, it hasn't been too long ago within even just months where <clears throat> some things happened. God allowed me to believe that, for example, Laura was going to happen at a certain time and I got my hopes built up. And then when it didn't happen, it was the ultimate affront to my faith. And so in those moments, those that being disappointed, God allowed that to happen for a reason because there was another level of faith I needed to get to. There was another level of release. There was another level of taking her out of the center of my heart that needed to happen. There was another level of making sure God was my everything. And, you know, so now this has been a couple of months and I just, it's like there's this, just this growing place of strength. I'm still excited about the promises of God in my life. But what I'm finding is, is that I'm learning to hold everything so completely loosely. There are some really good things that are happening in my life. Uh, Somebody just said the salvation prayer with me um, on the video day before yesterday through a YouTube thing. And I remember the first person that ever did that. I fell to my knees. I cried. I was like, God, this is so awesome. Well, yes, that was a good thing. And yes, the one a couple of days ago was a good thing. But it meant too much to me in the beginning. It was too much about me validating that God was with me, so forth and so on. And now I've released all of that. It's amazing to me to see how God has changed how I feel even about the blessings that are coming into my life. Quite honestly, I'm not as excited about them. I'm I'm thrilled, but they're I don't need them as much. It's I'm trying to explain how to articulate this, but that when good things would happen in the past, it would be like a fresh drink of water in a desert land where you're replenished and you needed it too much. You know, it was a good thing that you got it, but there was still such a void. You needed it so much. Whereas now, I'm so filled up and so gotten into a, I think, just a much more mature place with my walk with the Lord that my walk with the Lord is not dependent upon good things happening and my faith with the Lord is not subject to bad things happening. There's just this much more even keel. Sailing in my relationship with the Father, and I've just I find myself the longer I've had to wait, the greater this has gotten. So, for example, I've recently been invited to participate in this magazine, and it's really cool, it's exciting, but I find that other people are more excited about it than I am. I'm excited, and but I find myself having to say, Yeah, isn't this cool? because I don't want the people to be disappointed, but inside of me. It's like, I don't know how to explain it. It's just kind of like, yeah, this is what God is going to do. And I'm, I, I find myself in prayer in the woods recently. God calling me to hold everything so loosely that I can remain completely detached. So, for example, every opportunity that shows up, be it this magazine, be it something beyond the magazine, hold it loosely. Never, ever take what God puts in my hands and then roll my fingers up around it and hold on to it such that it never is attached to me. As soon as you grip something, you're now attached. 
To remain detached means, God, I, I thank you for putting that in my hand. That's enjoyable. I'm going to look at that. I'm going to receive that as a blessing for you. But, you know, if you wanted to take that out of my hands tomorrow, I'm not going to die because I'm not attached to it. So it's almost like what God was showing me the other day in the woods is to remain detached. No matter what he puts in my hands, I, I sense that God has been telling me some very good things are about to happen. And I, I told this to people in my life and in my inner circle that I said, look, God is telling me I'm getting ready to walk into the promised land. He's made it clear to me. He's telling me in advance, first of all, so that he is honored, so that people who see it happen will know that I told them that it was going to happen in advance. God is glorified, but also so that I won't be so taken up by it. I won't be so alarmed, astonished, or surprised by it. I'm not going to be as surprised about Laura when Laura happens. I just praise God for the strength that he's building into me for this. I had to ask the Lord the other day, God, keep me excited about waiting for Laura because I've gotten so content. This is incredible to me. I've gotten so content that sometimes I wonder, does that mean I don't even desire her anymore? Like, I just feel like I could live forever without her. And I, I've had to pray, Lord, don't allow that desire for her to go cold and continue to encourage me in that and help me to love her and realize that every day she's in my life, it will be a testimony of your glory. It is John eleven forty. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And interesting that right now I just got a text and my phone lights up. And what time is it? 7.55, which is one of those promises in the word of God to me that good things are coming. And so my point is that with this whole thing with Laura, I have desired her so much. For multiple reasons. Yes, because I have a desire to be married. Yes, because I, I want to enjoy the affection and the romance and the company and the companionship and the intimacy of sharing a deep relationship with God. Coffee time. Yes, I want to have somebody to encourage me when the lights have gone out. You know, so forth and so on. All of those things are good. But I also really want to, to love her and to be an influence in her and her life and walk with Christ and her children and so forth and so on. And I just see more and more how good of a thing it's been that God has made me wait so long. Because in, in, in I never thought it was good when I was having to wait. I, I, I didn't like it at all. Now, I would I would have head knowledge of it's good that you have to wait. It is good that you wait silently for the salvations of the Lord. I, I can read that in, in Lamentations and go, okay, Lord, I don't feel it. See, that's the key is I don't feel that when you when I read it. Lord, I don't feel it, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go by my faith. I'm gonna go by what wisdom says, trust the Lord. But now I'm feeling it. It's amazing to me. When you begin to walk with the Lord in the beginning, you don't feel the things that God is challenging you to do. You don't feel the faith. You don't feel the surrender. You don't feel the sacrifice. In other words, you're not having a desire to do those things. You're not feeling, you know, man, I need to stand against that lie. Man, I need to stand up and share my faith with that person. You don't feel those things. God encourages you to do them through faith. But what happens is after you exercise that faith over and over again, the feeling comes. 
God begins to change your heart through the very scripture that you're obeying out of faith rather than feeling such that eventually your feelings match the faith. This is what I am discovering more and more that the things I had to struggle to get myself to obey, the things that I have forced myself by reading of scriptures over and over that I must comply with this. This is wisdom. This is the best answer for me. This is how things will go well with me. And I don't feel like believing this. I don't feel like waiting. I don't feel like faith in this out. I don't feel like taking this risk. I don't feel like suffering because I'm going to have to obey God in this way. But because I chose to, by the grace of God, what I'm finding is spiritual maturity is taking place. By doing the very hard things, the things I did not want to do, I'm in this place now of spiritual maturity where my faith has been tested over and over and in so many different ways. I mean, almost every major area of my life, God has has fully developed this this faith, and he's brought about a maturity in me. It's unbelievably valuable for me to have, only again, only by God's grace, to have gotten to this place where my faith is so strong and it just continues to get stronger and stronger where I have to constantly remind myself, Michael, people don't believe like you do. People don't think this way. And so I'm going through all these old notes of mine going, it's almost funny to me to see how hard I worked to motivate myself and to encourage myself to believe these things that have now become second nature. It's incredible. Praise God, it's incredible. So all of these delays, all of these disappointments, all of this waiting, God sifting my motives, helping me to want the things I want for reasons that line up with His heart and his thoughts, and his ways. And so now, again, I feel like I'm headed into success in ministry, and it will not mean anything to me that it would have a year ago, or six months ago, or even three months ago. It won't mean the same thing to me. And I think to myself, I look back three years ago thinking, okay, I've I've done my six to eight months of prison time. It's time for me to get back out and make things happen and God is going to bless me. And I think about how naive I was and how God blessed me to cause me to suffer over and over and to wait for long periods of time, years, because he knew he needed to prepare me and build a foundation that he could put things on that wouldn't affect me. And I I can see even in just the last few weeks In the last few months, how God has continued to refine and just chip away and solidify. And I find myself in this very bizarre place where I live so detached. I've said to the Lord, God, there's nothing that you can take from me except for you that would ultimately affect me. Now, I'm going to feel pain for five or ten minutes or maybe a day. But there's nothing that you could take away from me except for you anymore that that would ultimately ruin me. I don't see any amount of success coming into me that I wouldn't. And I've, I've prayed and I'm going to continue to pray humbly, dependent. God, let it be that I always live in the maturity that you've given me today to remain detached so that whatever comes my way, I don't look at this as, oh, this is going to make me. Oh, this is what I, this is, this is the final piece. No, 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 no. I already have everything my heart truly desires. In other words, 
I already have the greatest amount of joy, the greatest amount of peace, the greatest amount of contentment that I could ever have. Whatever God adds to me from this point forward, Laura, my children, fruit, bountiful fruit in the ministry, those things are simply things I will joy in abundance. They are the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. They have a greater purpose, and that is for the glory of God, not so that I can be happier. Yes, I will be happy, but you couldn't make me more joyful than what I am now. I mean, I have had moments where I was homeless, where I'm sitting watching families going to church out the second story window, that I'm watching these families on Sunday mornings go to church and I got nothing. I'm all alone in the whole world. Nobody knows where I'm at except for the friend who's letting me stay there. Nobody's concerned themselves with me in that moment. And yet there were times when I felt such unbelievable joy and contentment because I learned to have God alone. And this is such a foreign idea to people. So many people have said, Michael, God is not enough. That is a person who is completely missing a true relationship with God and they are greatly deceived to think that you God alone cannot be enough it's a person who doesn't know yet and so again speaking from experience this is extraordinary because now I think when Laura comes it's not going to be this will I have the butterflies I hope so because if I don't that I mean how much do I care that'd be like saying I'm not going to have butterflies the first time I'm invited to go speak at a you know, a significant sized church. But it won't mean to me. It it doesn't have that lasting hit. It's like a, it's like a, you know, maybe you, you, you drank uh, a, a beer and it used to give you this feeling and now it doesn't anymore because God take away the desire. Uh, you used to get a certain amount of money or see a certain person or have a certain relationship or have a certain thing happen and it, it, it gives you this kind of a hit, like a, a chemical reaction in your brain that equates to pleasure. And that's that's no longer the case anymore. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy it, but it doesn't have that dependent chemical hit feeling that you it used to because now there's a joy that lessens the ability for that temporal thing to have a good impact on you. I'm not articulating this as well as I can one day, I'm sure, but the point is, when all you've ever had in your whole life is a McDonald's cheeseburger, that tastes the best you've ever had. But when somebody introduces you to a Ruth's Chris steak, and you eat that, all of a sudden, when somebody offers you that hamburger that you've been eating your whole life thinking this was the best there ever was, that hamburger no longer has the same hit. Because now you've had better. That, to me, is the best analogy I can come up with. I have tasted the best that a man can taste in this lifetime. And all of the hamburgers now that will come my way, I'll benefit from them. I'll, I'll allow them to be a part of my life. I'll enjoy them. But they'll never take the place of the Ruth Chris that I've enjoyed. And that's the way God wants it. God wants it such that He can add these things to my life. Oh, not just so that He can give me stuff, or that he can seek to just bless me with innumerable pleasures in the land of the living, but primarily for the purposes of bringing glory to his name. Look what I have done. I've made your enemies to be at peace with you. I've allowed you to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You believed and you've seen the glory of God. The desires of the righteous come to pass. And it's primarily for God to be glorified. 
for other people to believe him and to begin on this journey where they themselves will go through a, a journey of spiritual maturity, doing without, walking through darkness, learning to wait, having faith, having to be obedient to the point of putting the own, your own knife to your neck and suffering as a result because God asked you to wait or God asked you to obey or God said to you no. And in the process of all these things that seem to bring pain and you don't understand, you begin to develop this amazing spiritual maturity. And you begin to see God is all that you've ever had. He's all that you've ever needed. And then you begin to... So anyhow, I guess I could go on and on. It would be pointless. But the main thing is, is that I celebrate this morning as I go through all of this work that I've printed out over the years to encourage myself and to train myself to be godly. It, you know, the, Jesus used to teach that a student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. And I feel like that I have gotten to this place where I would say I have fully trained myself. You know, I mean, that doesn't mean I know everything. It doesn't mean I'm not going to continue to be a student and learn. That's not the case. I have my book, my end table has 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 books sitting on it right now. I'm a, I'm a consummate lifelong learner. I'm always going to reaffirm and, and learn more. But there is a level of maturity. Like I read all these books now. I don't need these books. I'm simply trying to learn how to better articulate the things that God has already helped me to learn through experience. I don't need these books anymore. I don't read these books and go, Oh, God, this is amazing. Thank you, Lord. I needed to hear this. I couldn't have made it without it. There was a time when things spoken in these books were so important to me and so revelatory or confirming of what I was beginning to learn or needed to learn. And now it's simply, I need to learn how to articulate better what I'm already knowing. It's very, very amazing. Very amazing. So, I celebrate today. And I will continue to remain humble, lest I think I stand firm and fall. But I am proof positive in my heart that you can get to a place. This is what I have been trying to teach people all along. This is the final point, and this is the ultimate picture of what I have been trying to teach people and what I want to teach people. This is incredible. All around me are people who call me, Email me, want me to meet with them. And everything, there's one thing I see common in all of these people, almost all of them. They are fighting for a position of freedom, not from a position of freedom. The difference between somebody like myself and somebody like them, which I was where they were at, is that they're fighting, climbing a hill, king of the hill. They are trying to fight gravity. They're trying to fight other people that are trying to climb the hill that want to be up there before them and without them. Then they're trying to fight the guy who's already up there, if you will, who's, you know, he's, he's, he's got the leverage, he's on top. And they're fighting against gravity, trying to, to, to use their muscles and energy to get and struggle. And this is what we all have to go through. There is a fight to get on the top of the Mount of, of Transfiguration. There is a fight to get on the top of the hill. It, it is a, but, the, but it does exist you do get there. I'm telling you this, I'm experiencing in my life what a man who lived in the mid-1800s, Hudson Taylor, experienced after struggling for five to six years in ministry. He discovers what he felt 
was uh, the spiritual secret of John 15. And I had already had this idea um, implanted in my heart through Charles Stanley. And of course, he learned it from Hudson Taylor. But I just, when I read John 15, the Spirit resonated with me. This is the most important scripture in the entire New Testament. This is the essence of what the Christian life is all about. If you can get this one principle, this will be the out of, out of which the overflow of everything else in your life and your walk with Christ overflows. If you can just get John 15, 1 through 14, if you can just understand the principle of Him being the true vine and you being the branches and what it means to abide in Him and what it means to rest in Him and allow Him to work in and through you, this is the secret to the Christian life. This is the secret to the Christian life. I am walking in this. I am enjoying this secret. I have found the secret that a man who lived in 1850 some odd found and, and walked in. And his testimony is, is that from this point forward, when he discovered the secret, he never had anything in his life trouble him that he could not quickly get through, get over, get around. His life, according to those around him, was always characterized by a strong sense of peace, no matter what happened. He was always with peace. This is what people would say about me. Over the last couple of years, I have learned to find a peace that, that doesn't mean when I get a heavy-handed you know, uh, text or email from my ex-wife or my kids tell me that they've been told I'm the devil or what have you, that I don't feel that pain for a few moments or disappointment. But... God has so strengthened me that I'm able to turn around authentically in the spirit and in my heart. I feel compassion for her and I love her and bless her and pray for her. And like right now, I haven't spoken to my children in three and a half weeks. I've been texting and calling my ex every day and saying, will you please let me speak to the children? It's been three weeks. Will you please finally let me speak to them? I'm not being mean. I'm not ever saying anything like, you know, do you realize if the court knew you were doing this? Or, I'm so sorry that you're so hurting in your own heart that you have to try to hurt our children to hurt me. I, I could say all kinds of things that would make logical sense. And then I could find 100,000 people who would say, yeah, oh yeah, that's true. You, you, you should say that. that. That's true right on. That's not the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ, Matthew 5.39, turn the other cheek. If someone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. She's taken my children She's taken my time with my children away from me. I'm not going to demand it back, but I am going to continue to ask. I am going to continue to ask the Father every day I ask, and God has given me a promise. That, incidentally, is the 755 promise that popped up on my phone while I was making this recording. It's about my children, and I am going to have them in my life when God is done training me. My children... Praise be to God, will one day bless the name of the Lord for taking their father out of their life because they will realize what an incredible thing God was doing for them by temporarily removing me from their life so that he could train me. I could never have become the man I am becoming with God's help if I were about meeting the daily needs of my children 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. When they were with me the summer before last, my parents would testify, I'm a 24 hour a day, 7 day a week dad. 
I got 12 hours in two months away from my kids. Not 12 hours. I'm talking 12 complete hours. 10 to 12 hours I was away from my children. And those eight weeks, they were not away from me. And these were times where I had to get something done. My parents watched the kids while I went to Starbucks. 12 hours. That's one day in eight weeks. Because I'm so involved in them. I want to be involved in their life. God knows that if they had been in my life, I would have never been able to learn and have myself be trained the way I've been trained. And there would not be people who are sending me emails now on an almost every other day or daily basis from YouTube telling me how God has used my story to touch or change their life or to lead them to Christ. That is incredible. That is incredible. My kids have had to suffer and become poor in this area of their life so that others can become rich. And so God is using all of this time, all of this time apart. God is in control of all of these things and He has been changing my heart. And no matter what my children walk through, it will never impact me like it would have three years ago. No matter what, a car accident, a leg chopped off, something somebody bad did to them. I have a, a different level of understanding of God's sovereignty than I ever have. And it's providing me a level of rest that is purely indescribable. It gives me a rest every day I want. I'm just so thankful for my relationship with the Lord. Every day I get up out of bed, the first words out of my mouth are, Father, I love you. Thank you for this day. God, thank you for being with me. And sometimes I walk down my hallway smiling just from the presence of the Lord being with me and knowing that I'm never alone. He's given me rest and contentment. He's been merciful to me when I've been distracted or lacked focus or diligence in certain things. He continues to encourage me. He doesn't hammer me. He disciplines me. But He's with me and He's changed my heart. I just feel like there's nothing that I could go through that would trouble me beyond five or ten minutes. I've gone through parental alienation that very few people have ever um, could even understand for, for four years now. Well, let's see, I guess it's been almost four years of just complete disregard for the court's order and just total alienation. The only way it could probably get worse is if she decided to pack up and steal the kids and move to another country. And um, God has just blessed me to stand and to trust and, and help me to be okay such that I'm not running around constantly seething, why is this happening to me? Poor self-envy. No, all of that's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. That Michael Criswell has died and left the building. Now I have this, Father, whatever you say. Lord, if we need to keep doing this for your glory, I, God, I trust you. This is no longer me trying to figure out what you're doing. The fact is, you're doing and I rest in it. You're doing, God. You're sovereign. And I rest in it. And I trust you. So, I missed, I got off of a... a, a a point. I was going to share this point and I got down a rabbit trail and I missed it. But my goodness, has God changed my heart. And that's the thing that I want people to realize is that God, if you will, 
Give him a sacrifice. This is what you have to give. You've got to give God a sacrifice of your time, your faith, your obedience, your trust, your love. It is a sacrifice. Luke 14.33 says it's such a sacrifice that no one who comes after me who doesn't give up everything he has can be my disciple. That's called a sacrifice. And there are birds of prey, Genesis 15, Luke 8.13, that will descend, or Luke 8.12, I believe it is, the birds of prey that come to devour your sacrifice. They want to do anything they can to prevent you from putting whatever it is God is asking you in your life to put on the altar because that sacrifice will ultimately lead to God's greatest blessings in your life, which will be the greatest death to the kingdom of darkness. Hence the reason the birds of prey are so active in keeping people doing anything except for laying that down, trusting God in that area, suffering because of having to give that up. They fight against that. And now I have discovered by going full in, all chips on the table, I feel so alone because I look around and I say, where are the people that have a relationship with God like this? God, where are they? Why am I so alone in this? Why is my faith so radical? Why am I having to tell all these people, you know, there's more. We've missed. We've been lied to about what the Christian life is. We've settled for the lesser because we're blind to the greater. Why is it that there's so few people who get this? And I know they're out there, but they're not around me. God has not allowed me to be around hardly anybody. I can think of, honest to goodness, I can think of one person in this entire town. In this entire town in three and a half years, I can think of one person, a lady, who has this childlike faith that I do, and she's experiencing God on an almost identical level that I am, in a way that if if she told this to people, people would think she's nuts. I don't know her personally beyond, in other words, I've never been to her house, I don't know, you know, what her life looks, but I'm going to tell you, I've known of this lady now for almost two years, and I've watched, and incidentally, God used me in her life to help her remove a major obstacle. And when that obstacle was gone, God came into her heart like a flood. But I, honest to goodness, of all the churches I went to, and I know they're in there. I'm just saying of the hundreds of people that I have met. And really, let's just say, you know, out of all the people I've met, that maybe there's, I don't know, 30 or 40 or 50, let's call it 50 people that... I would have known enough to, to assess their relationship with the Lord. Obviously, there's people I bump shoulders with here and there, and I wouldn't really know necessarily what their relationship is with God. But that is, that is tragic to me. Now, I know some people that are making progress in that way. I know some people that are taking the words that I've been sharing with them seriously and have been watching me carefully, and they're starting to dig in and press in. But they're not seeing God the way I am, like this other lady is. They're not... Seeing it, it takes a long time. And I'm thinking to myself, how is it possible that there's only one other person I can think of? How sad is that to the father? I mean, he speaks to her in the most supernatural way, tells her of things in advance to come, 
just illuminates the word of God in her heart in deep, powerful ways, when I see the joy that overflows out of this person's heart, and when I hear her tell me testimonies of how God is working and showing up, I say, this God, this lady has got it. God has got her and she has got him. I can't say that about very many people. I see people flirting with God. I see people that desire that, but they're not willing to bring the sacrifice. They're not willing to bring the sacrifice. They're barely willing to cut off a wing and stick it on the altar, much less cut the bird in half and place it up on the altar. And so they're left with those results. And it's, 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 I don't know how to describe it. God helped me to come up with an analogy one day of what this really looks like to God and a picture of what we can see, how we can see this looks, because it is horrendous. It is horrendous. It's like, you know, God is asking you to come in and go for a swim and you're standing over here balanced on one leg, dipping your big toe of the other leg in the water. Oops, it's, uh, I don't know, I'm not so sure about that. It's not quite the temperature that I'm looking for. God is asking you to take the plunge and get in and sacrifice, put whatever it is. My goodness, we live with such a, uh, the illusion that we have control over anything in our lives to begin with. So we say, well, I control this. I, I got to keep this. I got to hold on to this. I have to death grip this. Not knowing that when God gets tired of your games, he can take it from you and make you miserable. Or you can surrender it. That's the kind of love that God loves. When I got on my knees on, on October 30th of 2009, that I know now is the kind of prayer heaven notices. Surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and that day they're looking for a person like that. Heaven looks down, as it says in Second Chronicles sixteen nine. The eyes of the Lord are roaming throughout the whole earth, looking for the person whose heart is wholly devoted, not twenty five percent, fifty percent, three quarters, or not even ninety eight percent. God is looking for the person who says, "You know what? I finally get it. I didn't make me." I didn't choose to be on this earth. I didn't get any choice in my hair color. I didn't get any choice in how many hairs I have, my eye color. I didn't get a choice in what my physique looks like or doesn't look like. I didn't get any participation in my intellectual abilities or lack thereof. I had no choice in my emotional IQ. I had no selection choice in my talents, in my desires, in my goals, in my strengths, in any of the resources I have. I didn't get to choose my socioeconomic status. I didn't get to choose what country I was born in. I didn't get to choose when I would be born into this world. A person begins to get, they're only here by the grace of God. They didn't do anything to get themselves here. They had absolutely no say whatsoever in how they arrived, when they arrived, and what they arrived with. And so that person begins to conclude, you know what? This must mean I'm owned by God. My life belongs to God. God made me. And so when we allow the world to tell us, you belong to you, you're the master of you, if it's to be, it's up to me, no one's looking out for you, take care of numero uno, life is about finding your inner self, life is about finding your higher truth, your true self, it puts total focus on life is about me, I am the center of my own universe, and we wonder why we don't experience God in the ways that we read about in the Bible or in the lives of great men and women of, of God who've passed on before us. But the person who finally gets it reckons to themselves, you know something? 
I'm dead to the idea that I belong to me. In fact, if I've ever, ever recognized that I'm a wicked sinner to be doomed and eternally separated from God, only reconcilable through the blood and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once I recognize that and I put my faith in Him, the Bible says that He has bought me. I'm no longer my own. I have been purchased at a price, a high price, a very high price. Not seven billion, me, high price. When God founded the creation of the world, He was thinking about me. He was thinking about you. He was thinking about an individual. He doesn't look at the world from our perspective. Seven billion people, my goodness, seven billion. No, He doesn't look at that. God has the omniscience and the omnipresence to know each person and to call every person by name. And Jesus Christ says, Do you not know that the very hairs on your head are all numbered? So do not worry. You are worth far more than sparrows, of which it is said, Do you not know that two sparrows are sold for a penny, yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father? Who would not want to cash fully in on that kind of sovereign protection? Who would not want to fully surrender to that kind of wisdom and that kind of power and that kind of control and that kind of life? And so the person who finally gets it reckons themselves dead to self-will, dead to self-choice, dead to self-goals and self-pleasure and self-esteem. And you begin to say, Oh God, oh God, all that I am, all that I have, all that I was, all that I'll be, I give it to you. And this happens specifically because there will be areas in your life that you have struggled on, that you are trying to maintain control over, that you are fighting for. They are false gods. Anything that we rely upon, run to for good feelings, comfort, safety, protection, fulfillment, anything we run to, not things that have been added to us, but anything that we run to outside of God is an idol. That doesn't mean that the things that are in our life are bad. It's bad when we run to them before we run to God. So for example, if I'm hurting and I'm down and I run to God, but then God adds something to my life, that thing he added is not bad. That thing he added is a gift. But if I run to the gift or to an artificial false God, that is idolatry. I'm running to something apart from God. For some people, that's literally exercise. Some people, it's pornography. Some people, it's food. Some people, it's drinking. Some people, it's sex. Some people, it's spending money and buying things. We run to all these things to try to make ourselves feel better. It's a, it, we don't realize it. We're druggies. We're druggies. And some people use literal drugs to get the chemicals running in their brain just right to make them have the false sense of temporary happiness. And some people use things that are legalized. Nobody's going to put you in jail for eating a gallon of Rocky Road ice cream. But that's still a drug addiction. Because you're addicted to how it makes you feel in your brain. That is a false god. And a person is trapped. A person is ensnared. A person is not free. That person needs to understand John 8, 31 through 36. And so God would say to that person, Listen, lay down that Rocky Road. Come bring me my, bring me your full heart. Choose this day whom you will serve. Come to me wholeheartedly. Give me everything. Mind, will, emotions, time, talent, resources, energy, love, affection, adoration. Give it all to me. And I'm going to give you my very best, which is, by the way, me. 
when a person gets that, it changes their world and it changes the world around them. That is incredible. That is incredible. And people do not find this because they don't trust God. It's unfortunate there's this huge catch-22 in America. There's not enough people that actually really trust God, that put actions where their words are, take risks, make sacrifice for God. There's not enough of those people in America to see such that other people are not able to trust God because there's no evidence. A man told me one time, Michael, I know what to do. I, I, I believe this is the truth, what you're telling me. I just, for some reason, I can't put it into play. And I said, my friend, here's the challenge. You do not have a track record of God's faithfulness in your life. You don't have any evidence beyond the words in the Bible. There's no evidence of anybody in your family. There's no evidence of anybody in your inner circle that has actually put all in, all chips on the table. And then you were able to see God was and is faithful. You have to have a track record of God's faithfulness. There's not a person on this planet that could talk me out of believing in God's faithfulness. I'm ruined. This is what I like to tell people. I'm ruined. I've seen too much. Satan himself showing up and knocking on my door, I'd have to say, buddy, I know your story, but I know your maker. I've seen too much. Go knock on somebody else's door. I'm sorry. And you know what? That's exactly what Satan has been doing is knocking on other people's doors. Stand firm. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Stand firm. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. He flees from me because I'm ruined. Unfortunately, I'm ruined. It doesn't mean he won't be used to continue to chastise me, to discipline me, to keep me dependent. I've thanked God all the time for using Satan as a tool in his hands. But that's all he is. He's not this big bad lion that I'm trapped in some cage with. Satan is one of the biggest blessings in my life. God has used Satan as one of the biggest blessings in my life. He used Satan to scare me, to chastise me, to afflict me. All things that motivated me by God's grace to run and dwell in the shelter of the Most High God. God never once had to take away my self-will. He never once had to, to, to override my ability to choose Him. And that's why I adore Him and love Him so much out of my own free will. And that's why God in turn loves me. Because I'm loving Him out of my own free will. But God did give me the grace by using Satan to inflict me, to cause me to choose. And so I've seen too much. I've seen God's faithfulness over and over and over. I'm ruined. Now, could I have amnesia? Yes. But I choose not to. I choose Psalm 105.5 and I continue to recall the things that God has done, the miracles that He's done. I continue to think of all the deliverances. And I, I've reckoned in my heart, God faithful once, God faithful always. I've seen God answer hundreds of prayers, it must be. I bet I probably have no less than, in four years, 200 answered prayers or more. Recorded. Oh, I just prayed about this yesterday. Man, God came through. He blessed. Uh, I mean, I, I could be underestimating. I mean, let's face it. I've recorded probably about 1,200 recordings in the last four years. And um, anyhow, the point is, so few people will go all in because they don't trust God. That is why I have asked, and here's my final thought. This is why I have had a desire that I believe God has placed in my heart long ago. 
God gave me a desire to create evidence. I'm talking 15 years ago. In 2000 and 2001, I had this desire to showcase the evidence of God's faithfulness. To have people understand stories and to see that God is faithful. And so God has placed this burden in me and I have prayed for years now. God, give me a story that brings you glory. Not just to, oh, isn't that nice? Not just something that could be coincidental. People, no, give me a story that unequivocally brings you glory. I have prayed over and over, God, make a big deal out of me so I can make a big deal out of you. That has been a prayer. That has been an authentic prayer. God, make a big deal out of me so I can make... In other words, honor your servant. He tells some... In Samuel, it says, I will honor the one who honors me. The reason why he honors a person is so that he is honored. Not so that the person is honored. It's all a means to an end. I don't desire any honor for myself. I'm okay if nobody ever met me ever again and all I ever did was come out of that closet shooting videos and no person ever met me, no person ever was able to make a comment, no person was ever able to say God used you or your story to impact or touch my life. I would be completely okay with that. In fact, God knows I would actually desire that. Now, I do enjoy hearing what God has done. Mark 5, 19. And I do take joy. But it doesn't mean to me. That's, that's the thing that's so wonderful about this whole message I've just been recording is that it doesn't mean to me anymore what it used to. Because God's stuff and God's works do not weigh heavier in my heart than God Himself. That's it. That's it. Now, I just want to spend the rest of my life trying to help people to get this. Trying to help people say, no, I'm not stupid. No, I'm not some ignorant fool. No, I'm not a God's favorite. No, I'm not an anomaly. This is available to anybody, anyone who will and has the capacity and has their own free will choice to seek God with everything they have, meaning you're going, to be, you're going to pay a price. You have to be willing to pay a price. The price I have paid to get to this place with the Lord is tremendous. And that's why there's so few people that are willing to pay it. This kind of relationship with God is not free. It comes at a heavy cost. Jesus never said, count the blessings. He said, you know something, before you come to me, you need to count the cost. Whoever comes to me and does not deny himself and take up his cross and follow after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory and with his angels and he will then reward each person according to what he's done. But there's a cost in the here and now. There's a cost. And people are settling for a spiritual Snickers bar at the expense of the real, authentic presence of God. I want to encourage people to pay the cost. I want to tell people, I jumped and it hurt. It was scary on the way down and when I smacked the water, it stung, I'm not going to lie. But I, but I survived it and I was blessed in the process and I found a treasure that's in anybody's backyard, and all you have to do is sell everything you have to buy that field with the treasure in it. Just like Jesus taught. Sell all that you have. Give to the poor, then you'll have treasures in heaven. 
sell all that you have, buy the kingdom of God in your own backyard, make the sacrifice, pay the price. Because what I have found is that everything that I called a sacrifice up till this point, I'm no longer able to call a sacrifice. I cannot say that I've made virtually any real sacrifice when you compare what I paid to what he paid and to what he's given me. No comparison.